Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Tuesday, November 22nd, just after 4 p.m. Eastern. It is fabulous to have you aboard the show. By being here today, you are deciding that you would rather listen to me speak then listen to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino speak. I am honored. And if there is any one of you that picked Marco Mendicino over me, I am horribly, horribly insulted. I don't know who would pick listening to... I mean, listening to me is a bit of a weird life decision. Listening to Marco Mendicino, though, and then imagine if I were below that. Anyway, it is good to have you tuned in wherever you're tuning in, whenever you're tuning in. And let me also say uh, that I am so glad I had the opportunity to meet so many of you on Saturday. I was out in uh, Whitby, Ontario, speaking to the Rebel News Live conference. It was a great day. We had lots of folks there. Maxine Bernier was speaking, Ezra Levant, Sheila Gunn-Reed. They were all chatting about, and it was a, a great time. Uh, sold some books. We sold out of books, unfortunately. So there were some people that wanted to get copies of my book and weren't able to. So if that was one of you, you can get it online and it will be just as good, I promise. I'm going to be in Calgary this coming Saturday, this coming Saturday for the next edition of the Rebel News Live, the Western Canada edition, and a lot of the same speakers. Uh, Tamara Leach is going to be there, so I hope you'll come out and say hello. If I've been in Alberta a lot lately, but it's like the, the heartland now. It's where all the fun stuff's happening. And I don't know if it's related to Rebel News Live or not, but you may be able to tell I've got a little bit of a weird quality to my voice, weirder than normal, that is. I am coming down with one, or have come down with one of the like 27,000 things that are apparently circulating right now that we have to flatten the curve on. I don't know whether I've got uh, COVID. I don't know whether I've got an RSV. Maybe I've got the common cold. Maybe I've got the flu. Maybe I even have the monkeypox. You never know. I, I'm not going to rule anything out. I haven't gotten the vaccines for any of those other things. So uh, we'll see. But I hope you'll indulge that my uh, voice may have a bit more of a, a grading quality than usual to it. But the big news today, if you've been following it, has not been what Marco Mendicino said on the stand of the Public Order Emergency Commission, but it was Brendan Miller, the lawyer to the Freedom Convoy, getting kicked out of the commission hearing. Now, right now, Brendan Miller is back and he's actually cross-examining Marco Mendicino as we speak. One of my colleagues is tuning in on that, so we'll share updates if anything new emerges from that process. But I want to share the clip that is really the climax of this session. This is, uh, just for the purposes of my producer, not the longer one, but this is the clip uh, that led up to uh, Brendan Miller getting ejected earlier today. And then in the clip, he actually gets ejected by Commissioner Paul Rouleau uh, just before lunchtime. Sir? Okay, the, the Commission Council has not completed her. I, I understand, but sir, and your counsel's advised you that. Um, no, I, I know you've directed I'm sorry, you wanted the I'm application. Sorry, I'm speaking. Yes, sir. Um, the application, if you want to do it, you've been advised it's to be done in writing. Not in the middle of the sir, presentation. Sir, we filed two motions so in writing I'm, at your direction that you've refused to rule on with respect I'm, to the redaction of documents from the government of Canada. You're speaking. That has I'm not speaking. been ruled on and okay. have been filed for I days. I will take a break while uh, you're asked sir, to leave. I will return in five minutes if uh, security could deal with the council. 
commissions and resources to come to me. So there he was, the first person in this entire process uh, that I understand it on the council side to be removed. There were a couple of members of this spectating audience a few weeks back that were removed. Now, as I mentioned, Brendan Miller was allowed back in. So there was a a period of time he came back in uh, just about 20 minutes ago. He apologized uh, at the beginning of his cross-examination for speaking over uh, the commissioner. And the commissioner just had a, like, it was like a one-syllable response of, like K. So I don't think they're going to be golfing buddies anytime soon, but at least he's back in and re-engaged in the process. And I, I will admit, I was a little bit unnerved by it just because when you're in that situation, the judge has all the power. The commissioner in this case has all the power and you can't be much of an activist or an advocate when the uh, when, when something like this is happening and you're outside on the sidewalk, which is where Brendan Miller ended up after he was removed. And he did a little impromptu scrum with reporters that I'll, I'll play a clip of in, in just a moment. But at the same time, I also think it's important to understand the context of this. So uh, a couple of days ago, the process that the commission and their, sorry, the convoy lawyers went through was submitting in writing as they're supposed to a bunch of motions, two in particular, and the commissioner as of that time had not ruled on them. Now, over the lunch break, the commissioner did issue a decision on that, and it was regarding the redactions of government documents, which a lot of the parties, not just convoy organizers but also the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the JCCF, uh, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and several others thought did not seem suitable and did not seem appropriate. So what happened was they decided to get this, uh, put it before the commissioner and say, you, you have to compel them to release the unredacted documents. Now, over lunch, the commission did actually release that decision and they effectively sided with the government. But it was kind of a bizarre, it was a bizarre turn of events. And I'm not really confident about whether Commissioner Rouleau was in the wrong there. I think at a certain point when you're in this same hearing room for hours and hours a day, I mean, yesterday's session went from 9.30 a.m. up until uh, just after 8 p.m. You're bound to get a little bit more uninhibited than I think you were at the beginning when everyone was chuckling and having a grand old time and people were taking more time and uh, everything was fine. So I I think that perhaps tempers flare up just because of the longevity of this thing. And I think the tolerance and patience level on both uh, Rouleau and Miller were going down. But also in that moment, Miller's frustration was, I think, not necessarily understood by a lot of people. Now, this is him explaining this a little bit outside moments after he was ejected from that hearing. When decisions are not made on procedural issues of this importance, without undue delay, procedural fairness, not just my clients, but everyone's, is violated. Canadians are entitled to the truth, and you can't hide behind unlawful redactions in a public inquiry claiming baseless redactions on staffer correspondence because it may hurt you. And that, in my view, is what the government of Canada is doing. And it needs to stop. And had we had a timely ruling on these redactions, this application made orally today would have been entirely unnecessary. So that was uh, Brendan Miller earlier, and he said this this was a whole... I mean, here's the thing I'm going to say. A lot of people are undis- understandably 
going to immediately leap to the question of bias. There, there's been a lot of accusations since Miller was ejected that, oh, this was all just a hatchet job, and oh, this was a case of a liberal appointed judge, and the fix is in, and all of that. And especially when you com when you compound that with the fact that the decision that the commissioner released over lunchtime, generally speaking, sided with the government. But I should say, if you look at this thing in its totality, it seems as though the commissioner has been, generally speaking, very fair. There's been a lot of flexibility in the process. There's been a lot of opportunity for convoy organizers to speak, for convoy lawyers to cross-examine, for civil liberties-oriented parties like the CCF and the CCLA to put their perspectives forward. It's been a very fair process. Process, I think up to this point. Now, this week is where we're getting into crunch time. This is, as of the current schedule, the last week of witness testimony. This is when some of the most critical witnesses are up, the federal government ministers that were responsible for making this decision. So this is where it is a high stakes game. This isn't just like some public servant that didn't like the sound of horn honking. This is the pe these are the people that actually froze your bank accounts that are testifying this week. These are the people that sent in the cops to pepper spray you and me and other people. These are the, the folks that actually took the decision that triggered this inquiry in the first place. So absolutely, this is the week above all else where they need to get it right. And I am not going to willy-nilly make an accusation of uh, judicial bias on the part of the commissioner basis flare-up, although I do think it is an important thing for people to take note of, especially as things proceed. And I will note that the convoy lawyers have made a couple of applications here to call new witnesses, which, as I understand it, have so far not been met with success. They've tried to call the president of CBC as a witness, has not had any success. They have tried to call, uh, starting yesterday, the guy that the convoy lawyers think was the uh, wielder of the Confederate flag. Now, I, I should say... I have reviewed the limited evidence that's been provided on this. I don't think that is the guy. I, I, I will say I think the convoy lawyers are wrong about that, but they have evidence that they want to put forward and a witness they want to put forward that's going to make that claim. Okay, if this is an inquiry and a fact-finding expedition that is supposed to unpack all of these different things, then we shouldn't be closing the door to people that can, they believe, bring these facts forward. And that's the key question here. Is the deference only going in one direction? Is the latitude only going in one direction? I mean, basically, Marco Mendicino has not been particularly useful today for anyone. He, he's just kind of given the same old lines you'd expect to get from the government. I will say there was this very weird moment that I'll share, and I'm not even making a political point here. I think I'm just explaining that it's a weird moment where the word bromance was entered into the record. This is a, a portmanteau of bros or brothers and romance, a, a bromance, a platonic romance uh, between brothers from another mother, I believe is the, the Webster's dictionary definition. I have no idea if that's the case, but a bromance between Marco Mendicino and David Lametti the justice minister. And if you look at the terms of this bromance, uh, I'll pull up the text message here. Uh, Marco Mendicino and David Lametti are chatting in a signal group. So they use signal too. And uh, Marco Mendicino says to David Lametti, you were perfect today. 
Thanks. And then David Lametti replies, so are you, buddy. It's like, oh, I can just see the hearts flying and the birds chirping and all of that. Uh, you were perfect today. So were you, buddy. And then they go on to, you know, taking away your civil liberties and, and whatnot. So they always eventually pivot back to that. But I think the point of this, the Canadians need to understand right now, is that right now this commission is the best opportunity we have. Expose the facts expose the misinformation, expose the dishonesty that the government used in promoting the Emergencies Act. We have court cases, yes. We have a parliamentary commission, yes. But this is so far the most open option for this. So even if at the end of it, it doesn't come with a definitive binary finding that will result in some sort of penalty, it is still critically important right now. And absolutely, I want people that have facts to be heard. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to turn away from all this other news that's happening right now and talk about the climate and specifically the political response to climate. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, world leaders had descended on Egypt for the uh, what Mark Stein and then Mark Morano called the Sharm El Shakedown, the United Nations COP27 conference where they attempt to save the, save the world, prevent the Maldives from uh, basically being under water and keep global warming down just to like a 1.5 degree rise over pre-industrial levels, even if it means sacrificing traditional energy. They aren't really concerned about the details as much. Well, Mark Morano is the publisher of ClimateDepot.com, and he decided to lead by example and not take a limo or a private jet. We're heading to the United Nations Climate Summit, uh, and this is the way we chose to go. See you there soon. <laughs> that was Mark Morano riding in on his camel. Now, as we know, uh, animal flatulence is nothing to scoff at. So it might have actually been uh, just as bad an emitter as the private jets. You never know. Uh, but Mark Morano is the publisher of ClimateDepot.com and joins me now. Mark, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. I do have to give credit to Mark Stein. I believe uh, he had the original Charmel shakedown. So credit where credit's due. <laughs> well, it is a, a shakedown indeed, no matter which way you slice it. And it's interesting. I, I will say that I always get very nervous about these summits of, of what my government leaders are committing me as a taxpayer to. And I know it's the same for Americans, for Britons, for Australians. And while there is some of that to be concerned about, I think your analysis is probably spot on here that this was just a big, colossal waste of time. They come out of it and nothing has actually happened. No, I mean, the only thing that happens is they introduce a lot of scary, very frightening totalitarian ideas for the future and they put that in the groundwork. But no, even a BBC reporter came out and called the whole conference crazy and said, the BBC reported, and I have this at Climate Depot, that they literally just copied and pasted last year's meaningless declaration from Scotland <laughs> UN Summit, posted it this year and actually weakened it a bit. That was the BBC analysis. I can't say I disagree. And so what these are... And they've also added this year for the first time ever, it's historic, this uh, loss and damage, otherwise known as climate reparations. They want trillions of dollars per year to be spent by developing by developed countries like the US, Canada, and uh, Europe, and Australia to the developing world for so-called damages that we've caused. 
And the thing is, first of all, no one's going to pay this. Second of all, first, they're basing it on bad weather being worse. On every metric, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, droughts, wildfires, there's either no trend or declining trends on 30, 50, 100-year climate timescales. So if anything, that you know, they owe us for making the weather better as we've increased CO2. And secondly, any wealth that we brought in infrastructure to the developing world has helped them. And what they need are more fossil fuels, not handouts, so they can stay poor and it basically turn into the UN paying the governments, which are best able to keep their citizens locked in poverty. And there's a lot of government leaders that'll raise their hand and say, pay me, pay me, to ensure their reelection, patronage, monuments to themselves, pay off their friends. And that's how the UN really is brilliant, though. On this angle, they understand politics. They understand how to get yeah. developing world leaders to go against the interests of their own citizens by paying them huge sums of cash to basically say, forget the interests of your residents. Yeah. And some of these, I mean, the one thing that's always so annoying about these uh, conferences is that you get countries that have very outsized influence at the negotiating table, like Tuvalu and the Maldives, which are all the ones talking about how they're supposed to be underwater by next Friday. And at the same time, these are also countries that have very robust tourism industries that actively encourage and welcome people from all around the world to fly there. And then when it comes to this, they say, well, we need, you know, a billion dollars from the US. We need a billion dollars from the uk yeah and that's exactly right tuvalu the maldives all of these islands which they they've done press conferences literally underwater the prime <laughs> minister will dress up in a suit and, and swim underwater and they'll put up a table to illustrate their plight meanwhile they're building new hotels new airports the resorts in the oceans are doing fine sea level is not accelerating it's been rising since the end of the last ice age ten thousand years ago but there's no indication that anything's going to happen with sea level other than scary climate model predictions. So they're using this fear of the future. When current reality fails to alarm, you make scarier and scarier predictions. And they've been in the news all the time. With by, The media loves to hype the Pacific Islands that are paying the brunt of our, of our uh, you know, evil, sinful carbon dioxide waste. The bottom line is this. The industrialized world embraced wealth cheap fossil fuels and we've reduced our climate related deaths 99% in the last 100 years 99% and they keep dropping so what we need to do is not do handouts to to give to corrupt leaders in the developing world we need to allow them to develop cheap fossil fuels and as much as possible market economies private property rights very difficult in a lot of places, of course. But the more they develop, the more resilient they'll be to the climate, whether you believe it's man-made or natural climate change. I remember when the lead up to Glasgow was happening last year, the big refrain we kept hearing from Alex Sharma in the UK was that we need to, quote, keep 1.5 alive, unquote. And it was that, you know, this this linchpin, I think, of what they're striving towards is to get all the countries to agree to keep uh, global warming to a rise of no greater than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. At Paris, they can only agree to two. And they, they still haven't met this magic 1.5 number. Now, I, I think the number is is completely fictitious and arbitrary, but I do think it's revealing that they're up against this resistance and, and that all of these countries that claim they're uh, prepared to do everything, they're buying into it, they're actually quite realistic about their own limitations in some ways, and they don't want to go that whole distance. Yeah, well, I think a couple things have happened in recent years that are of note, and the biggest thing 
since the COVID lockdowns and now the war in Ukraine, and then of course all the green energy policies, which you know the Europe is much more further advanced along than we here in the United States. All of these leaders now realize that this virtue signaling that's been going on for decades actually has real consequences. It's no longer, you know, we're gonna, like in UK, we're gonna sh shut our fracking wells and we're gonna pour cement in them to make sure that no one ever, and now that, of course, the one, they're, they're, I guess the briefest serving prime minister in history, Truss, was actually talking about opening them. The new prime minister is like, no, we're not going to open them. We can't, we can't allow fracking back in the UK. But most of these other leaders realize that they can't make these pledges anymore because they've run out. When you're, when you're literally praying for a warm winter, when trees are more valuable than gold, and when you're fearing a cold winter like you used to before the Industrial Revolution, suddenly energy policy matters. So a lot of these leaders are getting hesitant now. They're looking at Europe particularly and saying, maybe I shouldn't be committing to these virtue signaling I thought cost-free benefits. And that's what's happened in the whole green agenda. We were sold a bill of goods. When I say we, not that you or I voted for it, but the people who did vote for these green yeah. politicians, they were we were told that solar and wind were cheaper, ready to replace it, that fossil fuels were out the window, that there was historic moments where solar and wind were overpowering the grid. And that's all we had to do was get out of the way. And every bill we passed was heralded as saving the planet. Every UN agreement was heralded. And what's happened? We've invested, and this was in the words of Goldman Sachs economists in the U.S., 3.8 trillion over 10 years for green energy. It dropped the U.S. fossil fuel use from 82% to 81% briefly. We're back up to 82%. Now, you'd think people would look at that and say, well, this doesn't work. Let's come up with a new system. No. They're looking at this. Al Gore shows up opening day speech at the U.N. COP Summit in, in, in Sharm El Shakedown, where I was, and he gave a speech talking about four trillion dollars a year in investment so they look at trillions in failure for no benefit and they say well we need to double triple quintuple and just keep on going they don't look at it as failure they look at it as lack of a proper investment the pathetic spectacle by the way is after gore is calling for four trillion dollars per year investment out and i shouldn't call them investment you know boondoggle or spending <laughs> Joe Biden shows up a few days later and brags about his Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. will spend $370 billion. Sorry, Joe, you're, you're pennies on the dollar. No one's even paying attention. $370 billion, we laugh at. We're talking $4 trillion per year. That's how quickly this escalates into just lunacy at these summits. Yeah, and, and they cease to be real numbers at a certain point. And, and it's amazing how much of a delusion there is by especially the United States in this. I, I mean, I know it went viral and I know you reported on it as well. Uh, when John Kerry was shaking uh, the Venezuelan dictator's hand, Nicolas Maduro, uh, you know, this guy that they wouldn't even recognize as being the leader for the longest time. And now when they're at a climate summit together, they're best buddies. And, you know, the U.S. calling China their partner in climate. It's like, it's amazing how they're so dedicated on this very one track focus on the climate negotiations that they manage to just forget everything else they say every other day of the year. They, they do. In fact, John Kerry, there's a $15 million bounty on Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela. John Kerry got a purple heart in Vietnam. You think he could have been thinking, hey, I could get another yacht. I could get another private jet. No, they, they could put that towards home. the reparations. Yeah, he could put it toward reparations. But instead, he shook his hand. I believe he shook his hand twice, if, I, if my memory serves, when he first yes. met him and when they walked away. But this was a man with the U.S. government has a bounty on, you know, the capture. He could have got a lot of money. But uh, th this was... You know, this was all these rogues. The World Health Organization, not only was Nicholas Maduro, but the World Health Organization. And yeah, I put them in the same category at this point. 
they were there basically trying to make climate a public health threat. They've already declared climate the greatest public health threat of the 21st century. So the new template is if you don't fight climate, if you don't support the UN or Green New Deal or the net zero climate agenda, you're a grandma killer because unchecked climate will lead to unchecked viruses like COVID. Second thing is, well, real quick, John Kerry appeared with the World Health World Economic Forum and actually said we'll use COVID template to fight climate. And then the big one was Al Gore and Google, which we can talk about in a minute. Yeah, the emergency thing, the public health threat is important. Like when Canada was having its uh, Supreme Court battle a few years back over the carbon tax, one of the arguments that some of the uh, environmental NGOs were putting forward when they intervened is that this was justified under emergency powers. So the same constitutional authority that the federal government of Canada has in this, in, a, in an emergency, they should be able to use that power on, on climate. And this was pre-COVID. I, I think now looking back at what's happened in the last two and a half years, uh, people should be a lot more concerned about that because I, I'm absolutely convinced, and I, I've gotten the sense from your writing, you are as well, that a lot of the things that really we saw modeled over COVID could very easily be applied to the climate situation, climate lockdowns, restrictions, mobility restrictions. This is all very likely. In my book, The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown, I have two full chapters on the COVID climate connection. And in it, with 90 pages of footnotes, 230 medical journals, including the British Journal of Medical, all these prestigious medical journals, say that to fight COVID, climate change, we should use the same template that we did on climate. We have Harvard School of Medicine basically morphing COVID and climate together. You have the International Energy Agency coming out with the same concept of calling like almost like an energy lockdown. You had a Soros Gates funded professor in Europe, Marziana, Mariana Mazakedu, say the phrase climate lockdown. So this is not some fever dream of a climate denier. We have all the all the tools of the establishment. The journal Nature just came out with a study earlier this year calling for an individual carbon footprint tracker for every man, woman, and child on the planet. Yes. The UN has teamed up with MasterCard to do a CO2 monitoring card that cuts off your spending uh, when you hit your CO2 max, according to their own promotional uh, material. But this is, you know, John Kerry in the World Economic Forum at this summit. And the most frightening aspect of this is Al Gore and Google partnering up for Climate Trace. Now think back to tr COVID track and trace. Let's go look at Australia. If you went to a grocery store and you were within six or eight feet of someone who later tested positive, police would show up at your door. You could be commandeered, taken to an internment camp, uh, a quarantine camp for 10, 12, whatever, how many days it was against your will because you were exposed and it's all for public safety. Well, what Al Gore is doing and Google partnership collusion, if you will, that they announced climate trace, 70 plus thousand individual emitters, emitters will be monitored farms, energy plants, fossil fuel. And remember, humans inhale oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide. This is all part of this measure to monitor our carbon footprints individually, tax, penalize, and restrict our movements. And in fact, the biggest uh, restriction of movement is, is coming out now with uh, all of these, uh, you, there's, they're talking about airline, uh, airline monitoring and pay, people who fly a certain number of flights will end up paying hundreds of dollars uh, per year extra, possibly per flight, depending on how many flights you've taken. It's an attack on freedom of movement. And of course, the G20 summit is what the big one was. They announced the digital vaccine passport, all yeah. these G20 leaders, where Klaus Schwab suddenly elevated as a head of state. But that is where they're going. The who is going after 
to be in charge of who gets to move and when. And that's frightening because when you bring electric cars in the mix, national charging grids, the ban on gas powered cars, you can see very quickly that they're going for our, uh, you know, our right to be free to move across travel, vacation, anything. Well, I appreciate that you were there and that you continue to shine a light on this. I hope next time you'll be able to find a hybrid camel for the sake of the climate. There, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I got the right. One funny last thing I was going to mention is Greta Thunberg rejected this summit correctly. We could all agree with her. She called it a scam full of greenwashing, lying. And here's the thing. She didn't show up for the first time to a U.N. climate summit since she became a public figure. She was replaced like that. There's a girl named Sophia from uh, you know, f- from social media, and I don't know if it was Instagram or one of those things. She ended up giving a keynote speech at the UN. She met with the Secretary Gutierrez, the G- UN General Secretary. She had a private meeting with John Kerry. She gave she got all involved in negotiations. She wears very skimpy outfits. They literally dumped Greta as fast as they could. They didn't like- So Greta, Greta had an understudy this whole time and probably didn't even know it. <laughs> That's right. So Greta's been replaced. Her name's Sophia and she is, uh, you know, was all over the place at this UN summit. And it's amazing. They, I, I really believe that they're not, the UN is not happy that Greta called the process a scam, which it is. Wow. Well, there you go, Greta. If you step out of line, they'll just turn back at you and say, how dare you? So uh, Mark Morano, climatedepot.com, his book about the Great Reset, absolutely phenomenal. Do pick it up. Uh, thanks very much for coming on, Mark. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Just be, because we were talking about this idea of how world leaders talk about things in that context, and then once they leave, change their minds, I have to share with you this little clip, which I've played on the show before. I recorded it when I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum annual meeting back in May. And it's a clip of India's natural gas and petroleum minister. And the reason it's important is because this man, Minister uh, Hardeep Singh Puri, was on a panel in which he was talking about the need to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. And then I ran into him on the street and asked him to elaborate a little bit. Uh, You were on a panel about oil and gas and energy this morning. Do you think uh, phasing out of fossil fuels is actually a realistic goal? Look, uh, I said what I had to, but you know, if you were to do that survey in uh, different parts of the world, if you were to do it, for instance, in South South Asia or Africa, or in uh, Latin America, you'd get results that might be a little different from the kind of results you're getting here. Oh, interesting. So all of a sudden, yeah, the people in the room, they're disconnected from what's happening out in the real world and in the developing world. It's a wonder, and it's a shame he didn't say that in the room, but all these world leaders tend to just go along with this. They go along with Some of them aren't even true believers, but a lot of them, certainly as we see in Canada, are true believers. And when that is the case, we have to pay for it. We've got to take a quick break here. When we come back, we will talk about a somewhat related subject here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. Isn't Mark Morano absolutely fantastic? I'd love to do a deeper dive, and I, I think I will. I've just like inspired myself in the last five seconds on this, into this idea of the COVID lockdown becoming the climate lockdown. And a lot of these measures that we saw governments are able to do when there is a quote-unquote emergency, 
and how they might apply that to this climate emergency, which is why that term is not benign. When the mayor of Calgary, Jody Gonda, gets out and says, oh, we have a climate emergency, when the David Suzuki Foundation files its applications before the Supreme Court of Canada saying, oh, no, no, there's an emergency. What they're actually doing is giving the government license to do some pretty overbearing things. And as I mentioned, the last, uh, in Canada in particular, the Emergencies Act inquiry should really put a level of caution into anyone thinking that a declaration of an emergency can just be made all willy-nilly, uh, whatever the consequences are. And on that note, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, energy sector in Alberta, but I, I just want to return, uh, popping back into what's been happening in Ottawa, the Public Order Emergency Commission, into Marco Mendicino's testimony. This is, again, the public safety minister who's been on the stand now since uh, basically 9.30 this morning minus a, uh, a bit of a, a break. And the thing about Marco Mendicino that's interesting is that he, I, I believe, I believe, and I may be wrong about this, I believe he's the fall guy. I think he's the one that is ultimately going to be the minister that has to bear some accountability and some responsibility if anyone does. I don't think it's going to be Christian Freeland. It's certainly not going to be Justin Trudeau. Uh, Bill Blair maybe is expendable, but I also don't think he is like the pound of flesh that's going to uh, assuage any concerns. I think it's Marco Mendicino because he was the guy that was sticking his neck out. He was the guy that was often making these incredibly false claims about how law enforcement requested the Emergencies Act, about how it was police that were asking the government for it. It was uh, police that were the ones demanding it. And then you put him on the stand and he's not doing any of that. He's not making any of those claims now that he is under oath. He's been very muted about the whole thing. So I find that to be quite an interesting way of looking at this here. So Mendicino, I think, is probably going to be the guy, if anyone in the government has to take accountability for it. I think he's likely to be the guy to do it. Now, it was interesting. So the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and its cross-examination really took the approach of how vague and how broad the orders were. And Kara Zwiebel, I think, was very shrewd in this question she put to Mendocino. And I want you to hear both the question and the answer. Do you agree with me that the definition of a public assembly, which is prohibited... Um, and if we can scroll down so you can see the whole thing, um, maybe we can just make it a bit smaller so that it'll all fit. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Clerk. Um, so a person can't participate in a public assembly that may reasonably be expected to lead to a breach of the peace by the serious disruption of the movement of persons or goods or the serious interference with trade. Let's just stop at that one. Um, you, you might be aware, uh, as an MP coming from uh, the province of Ontario, that um, we've had some labour strikes uh, and threats of labour strikes in the last couple of weeks. Um, would you agree with me that during the um, existence of these orders, uh, a strike would likely be contrary to these orders? Well, I, I, I do think that um, we need to be very careful and circumscribed in uh, defining what the powers are. So the prohibition of public assembly, uh, as it is itemized under the regs, um, does direct that people can't be part of a public assembly that may be reasonably expected to lead to a breach of the peace by the serious disruption of the movement to persons or goods or the serious interference with trade. Let me pause there and say that that is directly responsive 
in part to CBSA's concerns around the lack of authority to clear roads adjacent to critical infrastructure in the form of the border. And you can draw a straight line to the rationale for that power. That having been said, in addition to that, the regs still have to comply with the Emergencies Act, which is the parenting statute. And what that says is that, yes, all of the individual rights that, 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 that are there around freedom of assembly, including the right to protest, um, are preserved um, so long as you do not then cross the boundary into activity which could pose a threat of serious violence. And that is the delineating limitation to, um, to how it is that we both protect charter rights while at the same time giving circumscribed, targeted powers to restore public safety. So you have to read this provision, in, in, in my opinion, in conjunction with the parenting statute. She goes on after that to ask him about like whether it's geographically limited, which it isn't. And I mean, she knows that when she asked that and he looks at it, he's like, well, you know, if you read it, it's clear. It's only talking about where things are happening and some things could only happen in some places and not others. So, I mean, yes, it is. And then like, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is the guy. This is the fall guy. And uh, we'll have, obviously, more clips uh, a little bit later on. I, I'm told, uh, just in a, a chat here I have with one of my producers, that uh, Marco Mendicino uh, was asked if law enforcement asked for it, and he gave a very different answer than what he's given in the past when he's not under oath. He was like, well, you know, the threshold was met and we, we could do it. So uh, their, their goalposts are already moving at a rather significant pace right now. And, and that line we just played where he, he insists that civil liberties are intact, that the right to protest is intact. Well, tell that to the people that got arrested, zip-tied, uh, dropped off in the outskirts of town because they dared to protest even without a vehicle. So uh, thanks for that indulgence. I want to jump back into our discussions about energy here. We had uh, my interview with Mark Morano a few moments ago, and he's one of the few people that calls out the nonsense unequivocally. Another is Michael Schellenberger, who I actually saw speak in Banff a couple of months ago. A great speaker on this, and certainly someone who's gone through a bit of an evolution on this. And if you are in uh, Southern Alberta, he's actually speaking in Calgary tonight. Uh, the doors open. I, what time is it now? It is uh, 2.40 in Calgary right now. The doors open at 5. Uh, he's not speaking until 6.30, and that's over at the Weston Calgary Airport. And this event is being put on by Alberta Proud, uh, which uh, brings me to Lindsay Wilson, the president of Alberta Proud, who joins me now. Lindsay, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first time on your on your show. Yes, it's been it's been long overdue. So I, I thank you for for coming here. I, the, I mean, I want to talk about the Schellenberger event in a moment, but let's just talk about the broader energy picture here because uh, we have a new premier in Alberta, and I think obviously Jason Kenney and Danielle Smith are, are very similar on the oil and gas issue uh, from pu public statements I've seen on that. But uh, do you see any major shifts uh, now that we've transitioned from one government to another on on this issue? Well, you know, I, I think it's a little bit too early in Danielle Smith's and Premier Smith's tenure to, to see where she's going to go with this. But 
I don't know if you caught uh, if you caught her interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson last week. You probably did. A lot of us did, and it was really quite powerful. And I think she said it all there, all right there. You know, we're not going to be moving away from oil and gas. We're going to be moving toward low emissions. And I love that. And I think that's just kind of a good base to go off of. And I think that Premier Smith and is is putting together or has put together the right cabinet. And I think that they will tackle these issues and they will stand up for our energy sector and most importantly they're going to stand up to the Trudeau elites who want to do nothing but take our money and um, you know batter down our or our oil sands which at Alberta Proud our main focus is on energy advocacy and standing up for Alberta and we believe strongly in that and in Alberta autonomy. Yeah, and obviously the the energy minister was at uh, what what my guest earlier called the Charmel shakedown at, at COP twenty seven, uh, putting Alberta's interests front and center. And I, I think you know the the sad part here is that. I would say ideally Alberta's interest shouldn't be distinct from Canada's interest. I mean, certainly economically, a, a thriving, successful oil and gas sector is good for Alberta and good for Canada. But increasingly, there's a huge divide there. And, and the position that Alberta is going to put forward on the international stage is vastly different from the one Canada is putting forward. Yeah, that's always really unfortunate in Alberta. I think, you know, there has been this east-west divide or an us versus them, and it, it doesn't really need to be that way. You know, we're really proud of our best in the world, Canadian energy, of our Alberta energy. We produce the most ethical, sustainable oil and gas. Pipelines are the safest way to ship it. And I think the gig is up. You know, we, we've got Michael Schellenberger coming tonight. And he, he I, you and I both saw him in Banff a couple of months ago. And he does such a great job at dispelling all the hypocrisies of these so-called green energy solutions. And I think more and more people are catching on, just even in conversations I have with Alberta Proud followers. Uh, we've got a tremendous following on Facebook alone. We have about 212,000 followers, let alone all the other socials. So I connect with a lot of people on a daily basis. And um, I, th I think we're being heard loud and clear. And I think, I, you know, when you look at such the Trudeau, such low popularity ratings and how he's doing in the polls, right, in the toilet, essentially, I think there's a lot to do with that. I think I think we've seen a flip in dialogue over the last few years, Andrew, and I think people are coming around to see, yeah, I mean, you know, my electric car is the batteries made by child slave labor mm. in a third world nation with no human rights legislation and you know, the batteries are mine, mine from lithium. We're starting to see, you know, or wh where do they go? Where do these batteries go when they, when, when we put them into landfills made of dozens and hundreds of little tiny parts that don't decompose. And I think, I think people are starting to catch on. Like there's a lot of really good positive things happening in that, but there's, it's not going to replace oil, oil and gas. I mean, you saw what happened with California and the grid and everything this summer. We can't, we can't, we don't even we don't even have the power to power all these electric vehicles. So yeah. I, I, I think I think Canadians are waking up. I think I think we can still be on the same team. I, I think we can hopefully I'm hopeful we can move away from this us versus them dialogue. Yeah, and I mean, just to go back to uh, Danielle Smith's government now, I mean, pre-premier Danielle Smith, private sector Danielle Smith has been talking a lot over the last couple of years about private sector innovations, about carbon capturing, recycling, about all of these things that get to what the government federally says is its stated benefit, which is low to net zero emissions without carbon taxes, without uh, punitive measures that go after the oil and gas sector. But I know that net zero is a, a divisive issue among uh, oil and gas advocates. And, and, you know, there are some people that feel that, you know, talking about emissions is basically accepting the premise of the oil and gas sector 
director's critics. And I was wondering how you navigate that battle, because I know you see it among your supporters, too, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can talk more about low emissions, right? It, you know, we're we're striving every day. There's such innovations going on in the industry, and every day they're working toward uh, cleaner, cleaner solutions and, and to low emissions. And I think I think we'll get there. And I think under Premier Smith's leadership, we are. I think I think we've got the right leader in place, certainly for our energy sector. I think she really knows her stuff. She's been very uh, acutely engaged for many years, and. I like what she's saying, and I think it's resonating with with Albertans, and I think she will stand up, you know, strongly for our energy sector. So, so when we talk to people, you know, nothing's perfect, right? Our oil sands aren't perfect, and it's all a work in progress. But, but the the point is, is the world needs more, not less, oil and gas. Fact, it's going to be that way for our foreseeable future. So, do we want to be getting this from, um, you know, do we want to be getting unethical conflict oil, or do we want to be doing it right here? I mean, the answer is pretty clear. Just to go and back to... And that's kind of the way... Sorry, sorry about that, Lindsay. I, just to go back to the Schellenberger event, do you find that this issue has undecideds? Or do you find that it's the, you know, the, the anti-oil and gas sector position that right now has a home in the government and, and a lot of NGOs, the pro-oil and gas sector uh, position? Do you find there is a, a middle ground there that you're able to reach? Yeah, I find so I find, you know, we are in a bit of a bubble here, of course, in Alberta, it's it's I'm hard pressed to find many people in Alberta who oppose our oil sands. Now, certainly, when you travel across the country, I think you're finding that. A yeah, if you come to too, my but, province, that's a bit of a different story. <laughs> certainly, but you know, it's really interesting. Our, our, our mutual friend, Robbie Picard with Oil Sands Strong, he just returned from his two month long, uh, pretty incredible bus tour to Ottawa. And he was, you know, he was remarking in a video that he put out the other day that you know, there is a bit of a division and there's some misconceptions out there, but largely I'm meeting people across the country that aren't against our oil and gas. So I think that, you know, the NGOs and some of the really leftist organizations out there and the federal government, I think they're putting forth this dialogue as if it's coming from the people, but it's not coming from the people. It's coming from those above us, that dialogue. I think your average everyday Canadian is largely understands yeah we do have the best oil and gas here in the world yeah the alternatives aren't so desirable yes it employs a tremendous amount of people including uh it's the biggest employer of um of uh, high-paying jobs for our first nations our indigenous people so i think most canadians i think that story is coming through i'm i'm pretty optimistic about that well, and just, I mean, on a related note, and I'm sorry, I'm throwing you a curveball here. I didn't tell you I was going to bring it up, so I hope you've read it uh, or can nod politely as though you did. Uh, but just this morning, secondscreet.org uh, published a study that found Canada could displace half of Russian energy. So uh, this is a survey of oil and gas uh, experts. They suggest Canada could displace up to 59% of Russian natural gas experts, up to uh, exports, and up to 46% of Russian oil sales over the next decade and all you need to do is basically let government get out of the way here yeah absolutely i mean like danielle smith says um you know premier highlights the private public partnerships and 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 really i think most of us in conservative circles really see that right we can't just give the government a big carte blanche to bloat everything right we we need to create a business friendly culture and environment uh and you know attract investors right and we went through a few years there we're going to go back to 2015 to 2019 where there was a tremendous amount of investor uncertainty that was 
I believe created by largely by an NDP government, um, which was very focused on an aggressive climate agenda agenda and demonizing our oil sounds. And I think, uh, you know, we paid the price for that and we've come out of that now. And it is devastatingly sad that it's taking the war in Ukraine to to highlight um, what's happening with the despot oil and the reliances on it. But it's it's really blowing the whole picture up, isn't it, Andrew? I think it's making the average person really see. I think it's been a real eye opener. And um, again, my heart breaks that it takes such a travesty like that to show to show Canadians to wake people up. Yeah, I would certainly uh, agree with that. I know it's a a couple hours away, but uh, can people still get in on this Michael Schellenberger event? Yes, yes. I I, I really hope that I'll see many of your beautiful faces there tonight. The doors open at five o'clock. We will have some tickets available at the door. But if you go to any of our social medias, uh, if if you go to, like, we're Alberta Proud on Facebook, Instagram, everything like that, Twitter. Um, If you go to our socials, there there is a ticket link right at the top of the page there. You can click on that. 45 bucks gets you beef on a bun and some snacks. And there's a cash bar there. Um, I'm going to be hosting. We're going to have uh, Michael Schellenberger. Schellenberger is going to present. And then we've got a guest panel. We're going to have former Ward 11 councillor Jeremy Farkas there. Um, we're going to have uh, Dale Swampy from the National Coalition of Chiefs. And we're going to also have uh, Marshall Smith, um, Chief of Staff to Premier Danielle Smith there as well. And we're hoping to have facilitate a really healthy discussion where we're going to take some questions from the floor as well on uh our best in the world, all better energy, why Calgary needs to be, you know, at the front of that, front and center of that. And and, and at, at the same breath, talking about Michael's other expert subject, which is how, you know, some of these progressive policies ha- have been destroying our cities and destroying our economies. And uh, it's pretty powerful because, you know, little known maybe to some, but Marshall Smith is a, himself has his own really uh, amazing story, his own personal story of addiction and homelessness. And he uh, has done some really tremendous work within the UCP government to transform and, and to catapult this Alberta model to move away from harm reduction and safe supply, which we're seeing kind of the travesties in cities like San Francisco and, and uh, Vancouver and, and the effects of that and moving away from that into a recovery first model. So I think it's going to be a really great discussion tonight and I'm hoping to see so many people there. So we're, we've got a few hundred people attending, but we still have some tickets left. And yes, there are tickets at the door. So please join us. There's great parking. It's at the West End at the Calgary Airport. And, and thank you. I hope to see you there. All right. Lindsay Wilson, president of Alberta Proud. Good to get you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. I hope to see you again sometime soon. Likewise, I always always enjoy heading out to Alberta. So thank you for that. And speaking of which, unrelated to that event, I am going to be out in Alberta this weekend. So if you want to come out to Rebel News Live, you can uh, find out about that at rebelnewslive.com. And I will be there. I'm not, I don't even think I'm on the website because I was supposed to originally just do the Toronto one. And I don't know, I guess like the caterer canceled or something. So uh, they invited me, but I am going to be there. So if you are there, come out and say hello. That does it for me for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.